We are going to go, we are going to start in Isaiah 58, verse 1, and we are going to go through verse 11. It says, Shout it aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me just for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near, to, near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen, only a day of people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in the sackcloth and the ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke, Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer and you will cry for help and he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness, and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land, and you will strengthen your fame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. These are the holy words of the Lord. Let us all join together in prayer. God, we come today. And let us come with hearts that are focused on you and hearts that are expectant of you and hearts that aren't living by selfish desires but are living for you. And as Simon steps up here to pray, be with him. And let your words speak through him and speak into our hearts so we can know the degrees of your justice and what you hope for us. Be with him today. Give him boldness. Give him strength. Give him courage. In your heavenly name we pray, amen. Good morning, everybody. My name is Simon Campbell. I'm the Director of Worship and Technology here at Marion Methodist. Uh, Pastor Mike, like Kelsey said, is uh, still away on vacation, Um, a uh, a much-deserved and restful time, but I I got a text from him this morning. Um, He's praying for all of us and and looking forward to being back home. Uh, But today we're going to continue our sermon series called The Pillars of Faith, and on this projection over the course of this series, we've had these pillars up. Um, but I wanted to add something to him this morning, because we can. Um, so go ahead and put those up real quick. We're going to look at 
Um, we've talked about these foundational concepts in the Christian faith and the different words that are, um, that are part of these pillars of faith. And so we put them up on the, on the pillars. So we've talked about reverence. We've talked about confession, uh, worship. And last week, Kelsey talked about scripture. But today, we're talking about justice and what it is um, as, our pillar, uh, as one of the pillars of our faith. Now, I want to warn you this morning, there may be some parts of this that might shock you, okay? It might, might be a little bit uncomfortable for you um, because it was for me as I dug into, the stri- dug into the scriptures, but I don't want you to dismiss those feelings because they may be the Holy Spirit convicting and moving you and not just a bad reaction to something that seems a little extreme, okay? So, um, and I, I guess... I I also want to say that this area of the faith, talking about justice, this is a place in my own personal life and personal faith that God has been completely transforming and completely changing the way that I look at justice and its role in the Christian life. And um, at some point, I want to share all of that with you. But there are some things that have not that God is doing that have not quite come to fruition yet. So that'll be for another time. Uh, but this morning we're going to talk about three things that we need to understand in order to see the role that justice plays in the Christian life. So the three things we need to understand are God's heart for justice, as expressed in the Scriptures. We need to understand the justice that God desires, what this actually means. And then we need to understand our motivation and inspiration, what it needs to be in order to do justice. So again, we need to understand God's heart for justice, the justice that God desires, and what our motivation and inspiration needs to be in order to do justice. So let's, let's, look, at, let's look at the scriptures. Let's look at what God's heart for justice is. Now, if you look in your, in your bulletins and up on the screens here... Um, I have some scriptures in here. The, the top one is what I'm able to actually talk about today. The bottom stuff is all the stuff that I couldn't get to. Like, um, so I want to encourage you, uh, take, that, take that bulletin insert home. If you want to get your phones out, take a picture of the screen. Include that in your, in your study for this week um, because the Bible has a ton to say about justice. And the first time I ran through this sermon, it was 57 minutes long. And so um, it's not that long, I promise. But that's part of the reason why. We had to, had to trim out a few things. So um, today in our scriptures, in the Isaiah passage that Kelsey read, God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah to the people of Israel about their religious practices. In verse 2, it says... For day after day they seek me out. This is from God's perspective. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. God is speaking about a people who are diligent in their religious observance. They're doing... All, they seem to be doing all the right things. They're going to temple. They're even fasting. And, and they seem eager to draw near to God. 
They seem eager to know what his heart is, but as the passage goes on, it's, it's very clear that they're missing one of the foundational things of God's heart, one of the foundational things that he's called them to, and that's justice. That's justice. And I think sometimes it's easy for us in the Christian faith, it's easy for those of us in the church to think that um, the purpose of the Christian church is so that we can come together, we can learn about God, we can learn how to do the right things so that, that God might bless us and we might experience a, more, uh, a better, a more successful, and a more wholesome life. And that once we've accomplished that, we can invite others to do the same. Now, I know we may not explicitly say it that way, but I think sometimes by our practices that that seems to be part of, um, in in the holistic North American Christian church, that seems to be one of the things that uh, we would say is important. But if, if all that we are focused on is our own selves and our own self-improvement and fulfillment, we are being hypocrites and are opposed to the justice that God has called us to live as Christians. Now, I know what you're thinking, Simon, I just walked in. I mean, come on, like, that seems really harsh, right? But, and I know that we may not be actively opposed to God's justice. We may not be actively opposed to what his heart is in this way. But by our assumptions and by our inaction, we are contributing to the problem and are just as guilty of injustice that plagues our world. You see, justice is not just a nice extra thing. It's not the icing on the cake of the Christian life. It is one of the things that defines the life of a Christian, and it is one of the pillars of our faith. So God's heart for justice is absolutely pervasive in scriptures. It doesn't matter whether you're looking at the Old Testament or the New Testament. And one of the passages that's foundational to God's heart for justice in the scriptures comes from Zechariah chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. Now, there's a, there's a guy named um, Nicholas Wolterstorff. I had to practice that name for a while. So, um, but he's, he's an American writer and a philosopher. And when he, when he looks at this passages, passage and other passages about justice in the scriptures, he, he identifies four, four main people groups that um, the scriptures continually reference when they're talking about justice. And he calls these four people groups the quartet of the vulnerable, which is just a fancy way of saying four people groups that God's heart for justice is directed towards. So the quartet of the vulnerable are these four people groups, widows, Orphans, foreigners, and the poor. Widows, orphans, foreigners, and the poor. And now I want to talk a little bit about why in the biblical times, when this was written, why these people might have been identified as, as particularly vulnerable. You see, in, in biblical times, widows, when their husbands died... They're completely stripped of their rights with the death of their husband. There's no accounting for them in the social structure of the culture at that time. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a broken family, and oftentimes they're, they're victims of the social order. There's no, there's no protection for them. There's no rights, no property. 
And so oftentimes widows would be taken advantage of or, or exploited to do um, different things. So uh, secondly, orphans. Why were orphans vulnerable in the Bible times? Well, because orphans, without their parents, they're nameless. And this is at a time where your family lineage, who you, who you came from, and what your name was, was everything to your status and potential success. Foreigners uh, were vulnerable because oftentimes when they were in, in a foreign land from where they came from, they were rejected by the native-born. They're treated as less than, victims of, of prejudice and racism. So foreigners were vulnerable in this way. And uh, the poor, this is a little more, more obvious, but the poor were vulnerable because without possessions or money, they have no rights. And, and in many times, they have no hope of improving their station. So I'm going to put that Zechariah slide up again. And I want you to look at, um, look at this again in reference to these four people groups. He says, administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Right, so we see these people groups um, brought out in this way. Now, I know this may not seem terribly revolutionary or radical, but at the time it was, it was pretty crazy. Because what God is saying in this, what God is is, is identifying himself with and directing our hearts towards he's identifying with poor women in a male-dominated society he's identifying with foreigners and racial outsiders in an extremely tribal and nationalistic culture he's identifying with the orphans in a place where your family name and lineage meant everything to your status and he identifies with the poor in a place and time where your wealth was interpreted as a blessing from God. So you see, God is identifying with the people at the bottom of the social ladder. He's identifying with with weakness, and I think that's a that's a crate that should be that should stand out to be a, a revolutionary, a radical statement. But here's the thing: God doesn't just stop there. He's not sitting on his heavenly throne, feeling sorry for these vulnerable people groups. And encouraging us to have sympathy for them. He's not just saying, well, I'm willing to help them out a little bit. Or I'm willing to be associated with or, or be near them, right? God does far more than that. Because when you look at the person of Jesus. When you look at the person of Jesus, God incarnate. Jesus became vulnerable. He embodied the vulnerable. And what I mean by that, if you look at the person of Jesus, he did not have possessions of his own. When he rode into, into Jerusalem, he rode in on a borrowed donkey. It wasn't his. When he, when he had the Last Supper with his disciples, he, they met in a borrowed room that wasn't theirs. When he, when he was buried, when he was died, when he, when he was killed and buried, he was buried in a borrowed tomb. And in the last moments of his life, before he went up on the cross, he was stripped of his clothing, his only possession. Do you understand that Jesus embodied the poor? He became poor. Jesus embodied the foreigner because he was was absolutely rejected by his own people. God, the creator of the universe, wrapped himself in flesh, came to live amongst humanity, the very, the very people he created, 
and are supposed to belong to, but yet he was rejected as an outsider and ostracized. So in this way, Jesus embodied the foreigner. Jesus embodied the widow when he was, when he was uh, a victim of the social order at the time. If you look at the trial of Jesus by the Jewish religious leaders, they broke almost every law in condemning him and recommending his execution to Pontius Pilate and the authorities of the time. They broke almost every law. There was no protection for Jesus within that social order. He became a victim, and in that way, he embodied the widow. And on the cross... Jesus embodied the orphan because it says in a moment, in a moment when he was on the cross, God the Father turned his face away and Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, Jesus knew what it was like to be fatherless. Do you see God's heart for justice? Do you see God's heart for the vulnerable? It's everywhere in the scriptures. And if that's not enough, in Matthew 25, Jesus says it explicitly in a parable to his disciples. He says, when you, when you clothe the needy, when you feed the hungry, when you give the thirsty something to drink, when you visit the sick or imprisoned, when you do any of these things to the least of the people, As the culture sees them, you do it to me. Jesus is making a direct connection between himself and the vulnerable. God is constantly showing his heart for justice. Are you surprised? Are you as shocked as I am at how pervasive and how how common this is throughout all of the scriptures? You see, justice cannot just be an extra thing in the life of God's followers. Justice is one of the defining characteristics of the Christian life. It is a pillar of our faith. So not only do we need to understand God's heart for justice, but we also need to understand the justice that God desires, what it, what it really means that he's calling us to. And there are three things that I think the Bible points to as, as what this justice looks like. The first thing is equal treatment. And there's a couple examples in the scriptures of what, this, what equal treatment might mean because it means different things depending on um, our, own, our own definitions. But in Exodus 12, 49, Leviticus 24, 22, and Numbers 15, 16, different books written at different times, but they, these verses say almost word for word the exact same thing. And this, they say the same law applies both to the native born and to the foreigner residing among you. Same law for the foreigner as the native born. This is a crazy statement for the time because what it's saying is for the foreigners living among you, they get the same advantages, the same protections, the same opportunities as the as the native born in this very nationalistic, very tribalistic culture. In Amos five verse twelve, in Deuteronomy sixteen nineteen, and Exodus twenty three eight, all of these verses contain a, some form of condemnation of bribery, the giving and receiving of bribes. Now I know this is still very common in our time. You know, if if you give me something, well, I'll I'll give you something. If you give me this, I'll give you this. If you do this for me, I'll do this for you. Why does the Bible? Why does the Bible contend, condemn bribery in this way? 
Why? Well, it's, it's actually very simple. The poor can't afford bribes. They've got nothing to offer. And then last, um, the Bible talks about uh, equal treatment as being no preferential treatment based on wealth or status. In James chapter 2, it says it very clearly. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or, or you sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? If we are to be the church, there must be no favoritism amongst us. It shouldn't matter to any one of us here what... what your racial, cultural, or social, or economic background is. It shouldn't matter. And our programs, our outreach, our expectations, or treatment of anybody that walks through those doors or encounter our programs, they can't have a hint of prejudice or favoritism. Now, if you look around at Marian Methodist, you might see these, this principle embodied in a, in a few different ways. You see, we don't have, we don't have reserved spots in the sanctuary. It doesn't have somebody's name on each of the seats because... We can't, have, we can't have favoritism like that. Anybody come, coming in the doors is welcome to sit anywhere. And, and if there's, and it's the same with parking spaces. And if you look around, this is a brand new facility, but we intentionally, as a church body, decided not to have any place in the church where there was a plaque that said so-and-so gave this much or gave this much or gave at this level because there's no favoritism in the kingdom of God. There's no favoritism. So the justice that God desires is characterized by equal treatment, but also by advocacy for vulnerable populations. Because the Bible says and makes it clear that some people, some people just need more than equal treatment. Some people need more than equal treatment. And God calls us to advocate for those that are vulnerable. You see, the quartet of the vulnerable... It still exists. It's not just in the Bible times. If you look around in our culture, do you see victims of broken family structures? Like the widows and orphans of their time. Look around. There's plenty of people that are suffering from broken families. Racial or cultural outsiders, the foreigners of the time, we might call them refugees or immigrants or discriminated ethnic groups, but they are still vulnerable. They still exist in our culture. And the poor... Though it's more obvious, there are plenty of people who are without wealth, educational access, or employment. And these people groups need more than, just more than equal treatment. That's what the Bible says. Proverbs verse 31 verses 8 through 9 says, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor. Now, I thought about all this and tried to, tried to think of a way t- to encapsulate what all this means in one statement. And this is kind of what I came up with. The purpose of strength in the kingdom of God is to defend, aid, and share with weakness. The purpose of strength in the kingdom of God is to defend, aid, and share with weakness. So if you've been given strength... 
in any way, shape, or form. Use it for justice. Leverage your blessings for the justice that God has called you to. So whether you have influence, whether you have compassion and a heart of kindness, whether you have social status, physical strength, emotional clarity, a strong family ties, whether you have wealth or, or, or employment, use whatever strengths that you've been given for justice. Use those strengths to defend, aid, and share with weakness. The justice that God desires is characterized by equal treatment, by advocacy for vulnerable populations, but also by generosity. Share with those who have less. And I'm not just talking about, and I think in our culture there's a little bit of a difference between charity and generosity. And this is this is what I mean by that. Charity sometimes is a is seen as an individual decision. It's not required. It's not absolutely necessary by anyone's standards, and it's just a nice extra thing to do. But the difference between Christian generosity and common charity is that Christian generosity involves sacrifice. Christian generosity is different than common charity because it involves sacrifice. Generosity isn't just dropping off a box of things that you're done with and saying, well, thanks for taking that off my hands. Right? Generosity involves giving things that are precious to us, giving things that are valuable to us. One of the, um, one of the most generous people that I know is my mother-in-law, Laura's mom, Marsha. And if you or anybody else went over to Marsha's house and you're sitting there and you look around the house and you say, you know, Marsha, I really like that chair. If you mention something like that. Or, you know, I really like that picture frame over there. Or I like this little thing that's over on the table. Her immediate re- response would be, oh, honey, you take that home. You go, oh, honey, you go ahead and take that. It doesn't matter if it's like this precious family heirloom that's been passed down or like brought over from Ireland or something. Like, it doesn't matter. Or if it's very valuable, oh, oh, honey, you, you take that home. And I, and I think that that's because generosity involves giving things that are precious to us. Generosity, true generosity involves sacrifice. And I know that might that might stir up different reactions in our hearts. We might say, well, you don't really know how hard I've had to work or how much I've had to overcome in order to get where I'm at. You know, I've worked really hard. I've waited a long time to, to, to get to where I'm at, to achieve the things I've ha- I, I have, to have the things that I have. But I want to ask a few questions about that because I think God looks at our wealth differently than we do. Because you didn't decide where, when, or to whom you were born. God gave you your individual talents, aptitudes, and abilities. You didn't choose those things. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not saying there's no personal responsibility or choice in achieving what you have or, be, or getting to the place that you are, I'm just asking the questions. Do you think your ratios of what's earned over what's been given to you are the same as what God sees? And when you really look at, when you look at your life, is what you have really yours to claim? 
Tim Keller is the lead pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. And he has this great quote about the role of generosity in injustice. And he, it goes like this. He says, There is an inequitable distribution of both goods and opportunities in this world. Therefore, if you have been assigned the goods of this world by God and you don't share them with others, it isn't just stinginess. It is injustice. If you have been assigned the goods of this world by God and you don't share them with others, it isn't just stinginess. It is injustice. Justice is not one of the nice things that we can do as Christians. It is one of the things that characterizes the Christian life. It's inseparable from Christian living. A life that does not exemplify justice is not a Christian life. I know that sounds crazy, but a life that, exempt, that does not exemplify justice is not a Christian life. It is one of the pillars of our faith. Now, if you're sitting there right now and feeling a little guilty, I promise that's not how I want you to feel. And in a moment, you won't. Because we have to understand God's heart for justice. We need to understand the justice that that God desires from us, what he's calling us to, but we also need to understand what our motivation and inspiration needs to be in order to do justice. You see, justice cannot be self-interested. It cannot be self-interested at all. If it it is, it won't work. Now, I'm going to give you an example this morning, and I want to preface it by saying, I do not mean in any way to tear down or belittle a well-meaning Christian organization. But Life 101.9, it's a common Christian and popular Christian radio station in this area. They have, um, over the course of the summer, they've had this thing that they're calling the Summer of Kindness. And what uh, one of the things that they're doing is they're doing this social media drive where they say, well, go out and do a good deed for somebody else and then post it to our Facebook page and hashtag it Life 1019 Kindness. But if all we're doing is doing justice out of self-interest so that I get recognized, so people see what I've done, that's, that's, that's doing justice out of self-interest and it won't work. And here's why. Because when we do justice out of self-interest or guilt, it will only ever result in the minimum effort for the most impact to our goals. I'll say that again. Doing justice out of self-interest or guilt will only ever result in the minimum effort for the most impact to our goals. Because you see, if my goal is just to get recognition or likes on my social media page and and I want to do justice to, to get that recognition, I'm going to do it, but I'm only going to do it to the point where I receive the credit that I'm looking for. And once I receive that, my motivation to do justice dries up. If I'm doing it because I feel bad because of what I've been given or what I've been blessed with and I'm just doing it out of guilt, this is something I should do, I'm only going to do that as long as as, as, to the point, to the extent at which my guilt is alleviated. And I can say, well, no, I'm a good person. If we do it out of those motivations, our, our, our motivation dries up as soon as we have accomplished our goals. And there's a vast sea of injustice in our world. And it doesn't need a drop of our alleviation of guilt. 
or a drop of our justice for credit. So what is our motivation? What does our motivation need to be? Grace. The grace of Jesus Christ is the only thing that can make us just. The grace of Jesus Christ is the only thing that can make us just. Because when we see that the God of the universe has come to earth to sacrifice his righteous life to pay for the punishments that we deserved, even though we live opposed to him each and every day, even though we act in direct rebellion, knowing the things we should be doing, God has come to pay our punishment so that we might receive the reward that he deserves. When we see the grace of Jesus Christ, that is the only thing. When we embrace that, when we see it, that's the only thing that can make us just. When we see how God's heart is for us, even when we were sinners, we can have a heart for the poor and marginalized. When we see how Jesus didn't shy away from us, but became a human to reveal himself to us, we can see the dignity in others and treat them equally, regardless of their social, racial, economic, or cultural background. When we see how Jesus pursued us in our brokenness by paying our punishment and giving us his reward, we can advocate for those who are victims of broken inequitable structures in our world. And when we see how Jesus poured out his Holy Spirit upon us to live inside of us, to guide us, to comfort us, we can pour out our lives in generosity and selflessness to serve the poor and vulnerable. Only when we embrace the grace of Jesus Christ can we possibly live a life of justice. Do you see the beauty Do you see the vision of justice that God has called us to? Will you pay the cost for justice knowing the the cost that Christ paid for you? I've said this before, but I think it bears repeating. Living for the gospel will always require more of you than what you would ever expect, but offers far more to you than you could ever imagine. Living for the gospel will require more of you than you would ever expect, but offers you far more than you can imagine. You see, justice is not just one of the nice things that we can do as Christians. It is one of the things. It's one of the things that characterize the Christian life. It is, the, it is one of the pillars of our faith. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we, we've come before you this morning. We see your heart laid out before us in the scriptures. And Lord, I pray that if there, is, if there are things you, that you seek to do in our hearts this morning but are not yet completed, I pray that you'd continue to move, that your Holy Spirit would move in us, that you would direct us to the things that you continue to want to transform us through because we want to do justice We want to do your justice. 
And Lord, help us to look upon the sacrifice of your son. Look upon his unfailing love and grace towards us. And we pray that that would drive us forward. That that would drive us forward to share your heart. To treat people equally. To advocate for those who are weak. And to share what we have generously. Sacrificially with others. All this we ask and pray and trust ourselves to you in your name. Amen.